Now let's hear the word of the Lord. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm thankful you're here this morning. A couple of weeks ago, my family traveled to Big Fork, Montana for my dad's 70th birthday. So if you want to see what a well-sorted 70-year-old looks like, you can look at my dad. It's hard to believe, but he's actually 70. He could still whoop me if he had to. Uh, no trip out west to a national park or you know, big sky like that is complete without a few terrifying experiences or activities. You got to while you're out there. Um, I've never heard, asked, or been asked, do you have the bear spray so much? Which, that's a very important question out there because of the bears. Uh, so one of the activities, as opposed to other reasons, you'd have bear spray. It's, it, it's basically industrial pepper spray, I guess. Works better than a gun, so they say. But that could just be like an inside joke that the locals have with the tourists. Like, no, don't bring your gun. Take the pepper spray. I don't know. But we asked it a lot. So one day, we went to a resort. And it's a ski slope that's obviously you don't ski in the summertime. And so you can take chairlifts or gondola rides up the mountain and see the beautiful view. And uh, we were a little bit too scared to put my children on. I've got three children. We're a little too scared to put them on chairlifts right away. They can't sit still on the ground. And so why would you put them in a chairlift? We eventually did. But instead, we took a gondola ride. And a gondola, it's, if you don't know what it is, these were like hot air balloon baskets with a lid on them. Uh, so seven of us get into this thing because, because it's closed. We thought maybe it would be safer. And as soon as we walk in, so there's seven humans, four four adults and three children, my mom, my dad, me, my wife, and our, our three kids, five, four, six months. And as soon as it starts taking off, I look on the side of the gondola, and there's a sign that says weight limit, 650 pounds. And by the time I wasn't sure how much we weighed, the seven of us, we were about 100 feet off the ground. And there, I was playing it cool, because I'm dad. I'm pretty sure seven humans weigh more than 650 pounds. Uh, and internally, I'm spinning through all of the scenarios of how will it fall, what will it feel, fall, what will falling feel like, will we survive. Externally, I'm playing it very cool, like, look at the mountains, oh, it's so beautiful, what a ride. But internally, I'm, I'm freaking out. And it's, it's left me wondering, what a sh strangely not asked question, how much can it hold is. Uh, think about how rarely in your life you ask, how much can it hold, or will it hold? I certainly didn't ask before going on the gondola and a hundred foot drop seems pretty significant. How many of you, before you set, especially if you're a visitor, you don't have to actually raise your hands, this is rhetorical, uh, but if you're a visitor, if you're new here, how many of you crawled under the seat to look for a weight limit sign on your chair? You just sat down. Uh, we don't, you're loading up a truck for a Sunday project and very few of us are sitting there in the owner's manual looking at, you know, the payload capacity of your Ford Ranger or whatever it is. There's significant consequences if we put too much in a thing. 
significant consequences if you put too much in the gondola, significant consequences if you put too much in the flatbed of your truck or, or whatever it might be, um, a grocery bag. We just assume all of these things will hold. We assume when we cross the brand new bridge that it will hold all of the cars. Have you ever asked that question of your marriage? How much can it hold? How much, and I don't mean a weight limit, right? I mean like a relational weight limit. There is no warning on the altar of marriage that says this is how much your relationship can hold. And yet uh, the consequences are certainly more prolonged, if not significantly more significant. Significantly more significant? Well said. More significant than a hundred foot drop. Uh, you know, I, I believe the scriptures are trying to show us that there is a relational weight limit in our marriages. Maybe to put this in a more understandable way, what I'm getting at, um, how do we set realistic expectations for our spouse? How much of your relational needs can your spouse hold in a marriage? When I was single, I was committed to being the best husband there ever was. Um, you can ask my wife how that's going. Uh, but I read all of the books. Uh, I was the guy who went to marriage conferences alone. Any of y'all remember the Song of Solomon conferences? Anybody know about those? Tommy Nelson marriage conferences? Nobody? Well, I went to that by myself. Thanks, Travis. You can, Travis thinks that's funny. I guess none of you all kissed dating goodbye. Just me, I guess. Let the reader understand. Um, I was committed to being the best husband you could be. And through these conferences and books and my experiences as a new Christian in the church, here are some of the things that I learned your spouse is meant to be or you're meant to be for your spouse. We, in no particular order. Your spouse is to be your lover, your best friend, your cheerleader your accountability partner, your prayer partner, your Bible study partner, your soulmate, your spiritual mentor, your intellectual mentor. Do I have any more? I think that's it. That's all. I mean, we could, we could go on. In essence, evangelicals kind of adopted the Jerry Maguire view of marriage, where that's the you complete me, and we expect this other person to fulfill all of our needs. And in my generation, just assume that this was the way of things. If you're in the kind of 50 plus crowd, maybe you guys never looked at your spouses this way, but Everybody I know that became a Christian in the 90s had this view of marriage. Uh, and we put everything on our spouse. And what's been the fruit of that? I have an idea of what the fruit of that has been because you guys have been sending in questions for this series for a couple of months now. And we've been asked things like, am I allowed to spend time with other friends? Or how much time am I allowed to spend with other friends? Um, my husband isn't interested in my hobbies. What should I do? I'm so guilty. I guess I should change my hobbies because my husband isn't interested in them. We're supposed to be lifelong soulmate, best friend, partners who do everything together every day all the time. I'm bad at finances, but aren't I supposed to handle that instead of my wife? I don't know how to lead a Bible study for my wife. I don't know how to do family worship with my children. On and on we, we could go. Uh, there's, there's several big purposes of marriage, which if we miss the, the purpose of them, we will miss the design of them. And, and this isn't the only purpose of marriage, but it's one of them. Your spouse is a gift that God has given to you to help transform you into your true self in Christ. So one of the 
most consistent ways that God has sanctified people, that is, made them more like Jesus, in the 2,000 years of church history, one of the most consistent ways God has transformed people to become like Christ is through marriage. More specifically, through a spouse. Instead of receiving this, we've assumed that we are to be everything for them and vice versa. And I would argue emphatically that we are over the weight limit in our marriages. And, our, and cracks are showing. I want to look at this familiar passage uh, from Acts today as just kind of a quick reminder of some of the kind of 101 design of Christianity and then draw out more specifically some implications for our marriages in it. So one big principle and then gather some implications for our marriages. And the principle is simply this. Christianity is a community endeavor. The Bible has no category for a Christian in long-term isolation. The, the Bible has no category for the person that's like, I don't go to church, I just hang out in the woods on Sundays. That's my church over time. I don't hang out with other Christians. I never gather with, there, there just is no category for that in the scriptures. Or, or the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus that's just you and Jesus and not a group of people. The, I'm not saying you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but if that means it's only you and Jesus and no other Christians, the Bible has no category for that. And similarly, the, the Bible doesn't teach that marriage is an all-consuming, you're-my-everything relationship. So, verse 44 of Acts chapter 2, it says, All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Big words, all and everything. Hard to get around those. What did they share? Looks like everything. Who met? They all met. And so... Notice that there wasn't the married ministry and the singles ministry. Uh, like if, if you're from a church and you led a robust singles ministry, I'm not saying that's wrong, but there's all kinds of ways that we tend to want to subdivide the church thinking that if we you know, hit the target audience, things will, will go better for us. And that's just, it's tricky to find that in the scriptures. So if you want to have, I don't know, if you want to have a special dinner just for single people, that's fine. But if you want to have a portion of the church that's only single people all the time, I think we're missing something there. And similarly with our married people, all of the believers met together and they shared everything that they've had or that they had. So a quick principle there is if you're married or you're dating, you have to do that together. You, you have to get other eyes on your situation and other inputs on your life. Some of this is accountability, but in that in my generation of dating and stuff, accountability was essentially like sin defense. And so in account accountability groups, we basically have the two or three things that you know you shouldn't do. And you know what I'm talking about if you've been in an accountability group. What are the three things you shouldn't be doing? And then you sit together and you say, hey, did you do it this week? You did? Well, you should stop doing it. Well, what are you going to do to not do it? I'm going to try harder. And then you get together the next week. Did you do it? I did it. What are you going to do to not do it? And that's like the six years of accountability group. And and we see the Christian life as this kind of sin management deal where we're asking, you know, what do I have to do before it becomes sin? Where what if our accountability groups became more about what do I have to do to become like Jesus? What gets me more of Jesus? What gets me more freedom from this sin? What gets me more power in, in my life? What if we started moving towards something? So our, you have to date, be married in a community, not just to keep you from sinning, but to get other eyes on your life to help you know who you could become and, and where you could go. Um, marriage is not an unbounded, limitless enterprise. 
And what I mean by that is your spouse cannot be everything for you. Marriage cannot hold all of that. And you're, you're dooming your marriage and probably your own soul to some form of failure if you're putting all of your relational needs on that other person. Uh, the marriage relationship cannot hold all that you require. We're created for community, and this does not stop after the marriage vows. So all the believers gathered together, married, single, they were all together because we are created for community. Next it says they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Uh, this might be a little bit of a, a, a stretch here, but I don't, I don't think so. Uh, they didn't keep their problems to themselves, which I think is difficult for us here. Um, they didn't look to see, fix their problems in just a one-on-one -on -one situation, but rather there was community awareness of their problems, and the community came up with solutions for their problems. And if that was true in their finances and their stuff, might that have also been true in their relationships? Marital problems are rarely solved with one-on-one -on -one solutions. Or if you and your spouse are the ones who created the mess, it's probably not you and your spouse that are going to fix the mess. Does that make sense? If you keep doing the same stuff you've been doing, you're probably going to get the same stuff you've got. We need community to come around and help us sort through this stuff. So there was an awareness of the community's problems and community solutions were provided. Next, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity. So listen, your family worship is good, uh, but so is going to church with everyone else. It's interesting that there's times where people, they don't go to community group, they don't serve in the church, and they don't go to the church gathering here regularly, and then they'll come with some crisis and say, I just feel so disconnected from the church. And it's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry, because you've disconnected yourself from the church. Proverbs will tell us, he who isolates himself looks to his own pleasure. There's something going sideways to the Christian that refuses to regularly participate in the life of God's people. Date night is good. I was told if you had date night, your marriage would be fine. And that was it. What do you, how do you have a good marriage? I spent $2,000 to go to a conference that says, go to date night. Well, what do you do on date night when you make $500 a month and 450 of them go out the door? Now I'm supposed to take my wife on a date every week? I don't, I don't know. And so I guess I, we're just going to have a bad marriage. Date night is good, but so is eating meals with the community. This sharing is marked by joy and generosity. So they're not just trying to be holy and taking communion in their bedrooms. They're, they're going to church regularly. They're gathering together with the people. They're sharing meals with one another. All of life was happening together. The, to me, the clear implication of this picture of the early church is, is that we need to be married together. Our married couples need to exist within a community of married and single people. We need to be immersed in a community not just a marriage, because a marriage cannot hold all you are or provide all you need. So I, I want to be really clear, as clear as I know how to be, which good luck. I'm, I'm trying hard, but this is as clear as I know how to be. The marriage relationship is unique, but it must not be your only relationship. The marriage relationship is unique, but it, it must not be your only relationship of significance. A spouse simply cannot be 
a lover, a mentor, a best friend, an accountability partner, a hobby partner, on, on, on. It, it cannot hold all of that. We have to broaden our categories and see the importance of each other, especially in marriage. Other friendships, other advisors, people at different stages of life. This will require us to understand what can a marriage hold. And this is a little bit tricky because no marriage is precisely the same. This is also tricky because most of us in this part of the world, this part of the country and state in particular, are just dying for a list of cans and can'ts. If you would just spell out for me the 15 things that I'm supposed to do, then I would love to go and chase that. And that, to me, that feels like me being a drug dealer, giving you guys the, the medicine you're addicted to. Uh, it's, not, it's not helpful, and, and Christianity is, is far more nuanced and paint by numbers than that. So what I would rather do in talking about what can a marriage hold is try to set some boundaries, maybe lines of where the backyard starts and stops, principles so that you guys can go figure out what does this look like in my particular situation and, and hopefully figure it out together. So what can a marriage hold? Uh, perhaps I'll start most obviously. Um, marriage holds your sexuality. And, and we can't make the mistake of equating sexuality with, with the pure physical aspect of the sexual act. Um, it is both a physical and an emotional intimacy that is meant only for your spouse. Biblical sexuality is this creative life force that we all have because we're made in the image of God. The, the drive to bring new life and to be creative and, and to take things from chaos and bring them in to order. No one gets the, the sexual, most intimate parts of who you are but your spouse, period. Our sexuality, when it's expressed and reciprocated, it's the mingling of two human souls. The, the Bible will call it the two flesh becoming one. It's a giving and receiving of the, the deepest, most intimate parts of, of who we are. And that's meant to be directed only towards your spouse. Not because God is a buzzkill, but some of you who haven't lived in this design, you know why. I mean, it's self-evident at this point, the damage that comes when you spread your sexuality around, both to you and to other people. So to try again, to be a little bit clear, your sexuality should not be directed towards your boyfriend. It should not be directed towards your girlfriend. It shouldn't be directed to the person that you married in your heart. And you got to have a friend who did that. We went down to the beach and we got married in our hearts. And now we're just waiting for the ceremony and all the stuff to go through. And not the person that you've married in your hearts, not your fiance, not the person on a computer screen. Listen, if they're not your spouse today, if you are not married to them right now, they do not get your sexuality. This is easy to define physically. And this is where accountability groups usually want to say, well, what, how far can I go? That's the great student ministry question. You can pray for Pastor Stephen and all you parents. How far can I go? And I would just argue that's the wrong question. Like, how much can I sin before I really get in trouble? The question in terms of our physical bodies is what would be most honoring to Jesus, most honoring to my personhood, most honoring to my future spouse. 
This is harder to define emotionally. You can be in sexual sin emotionally with another human being because you're giving of yourself to them. And I don't know how to draw the line particularly for you to say this is where it is and this is where it isn't. I would just ask yourself, would my spouse be comfortable with me sharing this part of me with them? So if you're thinking about saying something, sharing something, inviting somebody into something, just ask, would my spouse be comfortable with me saying this? And if you're saying, I don't have a spouse, that probably means you shouldn't say it to them. If you're unsure, if there's any doubt, there is no doubt, right? If there's any doubt about whether or not you should share it, simply don't share it. Marriage holds your sexuality. Second, what can a marriage hold? This is a weird phrase, but I thought Travis would like it, so I put it in. Marriage holds your unique service. So, husbands and wives have a unique role in marriage, meant to provide a unique service to the spouse. There is a way that you will serve as a husband or a wife. You will serve that other person that is different than the ways you serve any other human being in the course of your life. You can go listen to Pastor Bobby's sermon from last week. I thought it was fantastic uh, that will describe some of what this means. But I'll give you two quick examples. So the Bible will say, husbands are uniquely called to love their wives. And just as a side note, let, let the reader understand, there is no verse that says husbands lead your wives. You ever notice that? Someone confronted me with that a couple years ago, and it felt like I got kicked in the stomach. Because, boy, we like talking about, I'm going to leave my wife in this and leave my wife in. You don't have verses for that. It says, husbands, love your wives. Which means you are not her boss, and she is not your employee. You're not called to direct them or manage them. You're called to love them. Which means you love your wife in a way that is enriching to her, and shows a commitment to her growth. This means you will lay down your preferences through acts of love to her in hopes that she becomes her true self in Christ. You lay down your life, your preferences, through acts of love to help her become her true self in Christ. Husbands, you are uniquely called to love your wife by laying your life down for her. Wives, you have the role of submitting to your husband and empowering him. Please note, Paul does not say women submit to men. This is another thing that I misunderstood for many years. Women in general are not called to submit to men in general. Rather, there is a way you serve your husband that is empowering. Words of life and affirmation. Does your presence in your husband's life give him strength? This means you'll lay down your preferences to help him become his true self in Christ. We tend to think that this is about how our spouse has performed in marriage for us. Well, I would serve her more if she wasn't so ungrateful about the service I do give her. I would say empowering things to him if he wasn't being such an idiot all the time. You know, we, we have this sense of I would do this, but she hit me first. I would do this, but he started it, you know? Both of these, if you go back and listen to what Bobby preached on last week, both of these acts of unique service are rooted in the model of Christ. Our love 
is a response to Christ's love. Our laying down is a response to how Christ laid his life down for us. So, real quick, husbands, if you are not aiding your wife's transformation, you are not loving her. Some of you guys remember my friend, Pastor Kevin Galloway. He preached here a little while ago and then tragically passed away. He used to go on rants about this all the time, how Christians say loving well or loving poorly. He's like, you don't love well or love poorly. You just love. Love is love. You can't love good, love bad. You either love or, or you don't love. And, and what I'm saying to you is if you are not aiding your wife's transformation, you are not loving her. If your wife is scared, if she never disagrees with you, if her voice and opinion is never heard, you are not loving her. Maybe you're leading her, maybe you're managing her, but you are not loving her. Uh, a spouse should not be scared of her husband. A spouse should have a voice in her marriage. Wives, your words breathe life to your husband in a way no one else's do. If your words are critical and biting, condescending, you are not empowering him. Your words can make him stronger and more confident, and no one can do that for him like you can. You have unbelievable power, wife, to speak strength and courage into your husband. Marriage is meant to hold your unique service to your spouse. Now, the place where this will be most required of us is also the place where this will be most difficult. Marriage holds your sexuality, marriage holds your unique service, and marriage holds your limitations. No relationship will feel or carry the weight of your limitations like your marriage will. A healthy marriage is the commitment to one another's growth in light of their limitations, not despite their limitations, Christian marriage is a covenant. It's a lifelong commitment to the good of the other. Uh, a lifelong commitment to foster the other's growth in Christ-likeness. Entering into this, staying in this, will require the holding of limitations. Not the fixing, not the fighting, the accepting, perhaps even the grieving and holding of limitations. All of us marry into limitations. Some of you didn't know your limitations or what this word limitations means until you got married. Some of your limitations are your fault. Some of them are not your fault. Some you didn't vote for. Some are really simple and some are really complicated. So let me talk to you about what I mean. Let's get a little bit practical. Almost nine years into marriage, I can withstand roughly two hours of going to yard sales. Maybe. By the look of my wife's face, that looks like maybe 45 minutes is more honest. <laughs> that is better than where it was, but that's what I got. My wife has to accept that while I must be willing to grow into that. You see the, the dance that's happening here? Uh, conversely, my wife can handle 45 minutes of Toyota Land Cruiser conversation. <laughs> 45? 10? She can handle less than I can. But listen, you have no verse 
that says your spouse must be equally passionate about your hobbies. As the old song would say, that's what friends are for. You remember that song? The good times, the bad times. No? Nobody? Wasn't that Michael W. Smith or something like that? What's with you Christians? There was some song. My point is, if you try to expect your spouse to be equally passionate about everything that you're passionate, it doesn't, it doesn't take into light that some people are just more excited about everything than other people. Introverts tend to be more excited about shiny things, right? Like, ooh, look, fun, let's go. If you expect, it doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge the different dispositions of people and just also the different interests of people. To expect your spouse to be equally passionate about whatever it is you're passionate about will likely overwhelm them, if not eventually crush them. So we encourage each other. Go to yard sales. Go to your Land Cruiser Club. Go to, the, you know, do the thing. And let's be honest about our limited participation with one another. Would it be better for me to white-knuckle my way through nine hours of yard sales and invariably sin against my wife and children with my words and attitude? You know what I mean? Like, I wish I could do that. In an ideal world, I would be equipped to do that. But it doesn't go well for us. So I have to be honest about how much I can handle, and my wife has to be willing to accept that limitation, and vice versa. We have to encourage each other, give space to pursue these things, and be honest about our limited participation. That's a pretty simple example, I think, though it took five minutes to explain it. It gets way more complicated than this in terms of our limitations. Some of you come from families where everything was discussed. You just talked about it all, and there was no emotion that wasn't allowed. You could be happy, angry, sad, fussy, you could cry, you could, and it was just, everything was okay. And when problems come, you just want to talk, 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 talk. And you'll say it all and spill it all. And you went to a conference that said you should say everything to your wife. If you think it, you should share it. Which if you believe that, you probably aren't married or you're very confused because you do that and you see what happens. You not necessarily should say everything. That's another, come talk to me about that afterwards if you want. So you want to talk, 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 and share everything. But you married somebody whose family didn't talk about anything. Nothing gets discussed. So when you want to talk, 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 they want to get quiet, quiet, quiet. And then you start colliding with one another. This tension isn't because he doesn't love you. You know, say your, your husband is the one who gets quiet, quiet, quiet. His silence isn't because he doesn't love you. It's because he cannot do what you can do. He's not, he's not wired to share that way. He's not wired to process that way. And that's a limitation you will have to hold being married to that person. It's not because she doesn't care about the problems. It's because your marriage has limitations. Marriage is meant to be a safe place for you on a journey of growth, for your spouse on a journey of growth. So just, just think, where are you frustrated by your spouse's limitations? Maybe it's with their sexuality. Maybe it's with their capacity for vulnerability or intimacy. Wherever that frustration is, 
What if you began to see that as the grounds for your unique service to Christ? The unique role, the things that you and only you can do in your marriage. What if we became a people who got curious about our spouse's limitations and learned to hold and accept them? What would happen if you strove for a greater willingness in your own soul to change, to grow in your own limitations? I, th I think there's kind of fundamentally two ways to crush a marriage. One is to put expectations on your spouse that the Bible never does. You're expecting a marriage to do something the scriptures never say or promise that it will do. Namely, that they will fulfill all your needs and complete you. If that is you in your marriage, you are suffocating your marriage. And I don't know how long it will last, frankly. The other way to crush a marriage is to stubbornly refuse to receive your spouse as a gift of transformation. To refuse to see this other person as someone God has given you to help you become your true self in Christ. So real practically for you to think about, are you willing to accept your spouse's limitations? If you've been married more than like two weeks, you know, you know at least one of them. You, you, you butt heads on at least one of them. Are you willing to work on your own limitations? Together, are you willing to hold one another in this journey of growth in Christ? So here's what I want you to do. Monday challenge, as Bobby would say. I want you to ask your spouse this question. What else do you need? Christians get squirrely around the need question. I only need Jesus, says the person who goes to sleep every night and eats three times a day and takes vacation. You, you need a lot of things to be a human. What else do you need? Listen. Give them space. Ask questions. You're not allowed to be critical. You can only be curious. You're not allowed to get defensive. What else do you need? And then together, ask, is this something for me to give or for someone else to give? Is, is this a place where my unique service can move towards you? Or do we need to figure out how to get more people in our lives together? And then maybe go crazy and invite someone from church over for a meal and talk to them about what you shared. Close your mouth and let your friends speak in. And tell you what they hear. Let them tell you what they think. Because, because here's what will happen. Christian marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. That's another one of the big purposes behind it. And real quick, let me remind you of your conversion. You remember, coming to Jesus it often feels like a wedding ceremony. Remember being on fire for Jesus and the first time and you were like, you couldn't get to the baptism waters fast enough. At least that's a common experience. You meet Jesus, you kind of have this falling in love experience, and you feel like life makes sense, and, and you're, just, you're just ready to go, life-changing. Then a little ways in, it's not a precise amount of time, but a little ways in, you remember finding out you were worse than you thought you were? You remember that feeling of seeing new sin, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've been going to Bible study for six months, and I'm worse. That's not what happened. 
Most Christians I know feel like they're worse a few years into following Jesus than they were before. Not because they actually are, but because they just see themselves more clearly. Christ comes to us and he'll expose us in order to heal us. And so this rhythm comes about in the Christian life that you learn new depths of your brokenness, and this pushes you to experience new depths of the love of Christ. Because you see that new thing, and you're like, oh my... I mean, some of y'all, the worst things you did was after you were a Christian, right? You don't have to amen that. That's true for me. You did it after you became a Christian. And then you get this awful, shameful, painful experience, and Christ comes and heals even that. And he's like, when I died on the cross, yeah, it was even for that too. None of this caught me by surprise. In the same way, your marriage will expose your limitations, your shortcomings, your failures. But if you press in, if you learn to hold on, speak words of life, you will find new depths of love there. If you continually see your spouse as a gift that's been given to transform you, not meet your desires, you will receive those wounds and find a deeper love. And and fundamentally what you will find there is a, a God love, a taste of the love that God has for you and his church. And this will motivate us to the true wonder of Christian marriage, the model of Jesus. It's in these places that we experience the love of Christ and learn to trust him to follow his lead. This, this Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who came not with expectations that we would meet his every need, but rather who came to serve and give his life. We who have been saved by grace must go and be married by grace. And this is not rooted in our spouse's response to us, but rather it is a response into what Christ has done for us. So every week we gather to remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. So how much will it hold? Marriage can hold a lot, but it it cannot hold everything. Uh, Thanks be to God, we have a God who is literally holding all things together by the power of his word, moment by moment, who has infinite capacity for intimacy and availability. And in communion, we are invited to bring all we are to him, to cast our cares upon him and to learn to trust him. So our tradition is to come forward, rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Uh, This is the time, Christian, where we remember Christ's great love for us and our union with him so that we might go and live as he lives to a world that needs him. I'll pray for us, and then, Christians, let's come celebrate our hope together. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the incredible love that you've displayed to us, uh, that you've, you've known full well our limitations. You've known f- you know full well what, what we've lived and the kind of shape it's left us in. Um, you know full well the choices we've made and uh, the ways that we've thought we knew best in our marriages, in all of our relationships. And we are grateful that uh, in Christ we see what kind of God you are, that you're merciful you are slow to anger, you are good, 
um, and that you have the power to raise the dead, the power to heal, the power to transform. So for those here, Lord, who are uh, filled with desperation or who've lost hope in their marriages, I pray that you would fill their senses um, with the hope of Christ, that as we participate in communion, we would be reminded of your power uh, to bring life where once there was death, uh, and that we as your people would be marked by hope, uh, hope in your spirit's power to bring life and to change. Uh, grant us a greater willingness to trust you and to be transformed by you. And again, I pray as we come to communion, we would see um, the sacred meal as evidence that you are good and you are trustworthy. So we need you, Father. We need your help. We need uh, your encouragement and comfort, and we need your leading as we um, seek to love our spouses in a way that reveals who Christ is to the world. So in your mercy, hear our prayers and help us, Lord. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.